Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 2. People are willing to fight for and against many things. They fight for things that they treasure. If you can think of a few illustrations of this, uh, people that have fought over the years for equality. They, they treasured something and they fought for equality. Uh, if people that fight even today for animal rights, they, there's, it's because they treasure that possibility of animals being treated just like humans. They treasure it. What are you going to say, right? An ant is every bit as important as your child for some people. I don't agree, but they treasure this, and so they, they espouse it. Some uh, fight for underprivileged, and we're glad they do. Some fight for special needs. These people fight for causes that they hold dear to their hearts. And what we want to see this morning as we consider God's Word is this. We should treasure the church. We should treasure the church. And we need to recognize that the church is worth fighting for. The church is worth fighting for. Take a look with me at Colossians 2, beginning in verse 1. God's Word says this, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He starts off with this statement, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. The ESV has how great a struggle I have for you. The, this is a, a, a striving, and the word really in the Greek is agonizo. It, it has the idea of agonizing. There's something that is intense about this struggle, this conflict. He is agonizing for them. Paul used these same words in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 and verse 12, where he said, Fight the good fight of faith. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 7, he said, I have fought a good fight. And in that great passage where Paul likens the Christian race to to athletic events in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25, he makes this statement, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. And so there's this concept of striving, struggling, a conflict, this, this passion that he has. He used the word in the last chapter, in, first, uh, in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 29. We'll look at verse 28 for context. It says, Him we preach, speaking of Jesus, we preach Christ. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, here's our word, striving 
according to his working, which works in me mightily. So he's talking about this intensity, this, this passion, this fight. He's fighting for something. He's not fighting against someone. Like when we think of fight, we're thinking about, okay, here's someone over there, he's, a, he's an opponent and I'm ready to knock him out. This is not the kind of fight. We're talking about fighting for someone on their behalf. We want to win them. We want to help them. We want to aid them. And this is the intensity he has. Take a look at the end of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. The word is used one more time in the book. Colossians 4 and verse 12. Speaking about Epaphras, the likely founder and pastor of the church at Colossae, he says this, Epaphras who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently. There's our idea. Laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And so he's talking about this contending. He he wants to fight for them. Now as we think about this, we want to notice three aspects of our contending for the church. Three aspects of our contending for the church. The first one is this. We should fight for the whole church. We should fight for the whole church. And I I love this about this passage. I love this about Paul. I love this about people that know Christ and that know God. That they're not just interested in one manifestation of God's church. Well, we're we're all about our church. It's all about Cornerstone in Warwick. No, no. No, that's, that's not the way that my Bible reads. It's not about one church. It's about one church at large, the whole church. And it's so interesting, as he starts chapter 2, he lets us know he's not just interested in the Colossians, he's also interested in the Laodiceans, and, and he's interested in all these people. They haven't even seen him. Look at what it says again at verse, in verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict or struggle I have for you, you Colossians, and those in Laodicea. Those are right down the street from the, the Colossians. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He is contending for people he's never met. Now, if you were to hear this today, knowing preachers, you might think, well, he's just trying to get himself a bigger crowd so he can have a conference in those areas. That's, he's not looking for anything from them. He's not trying to, to, to struggle for them so that they'll say, oh yeah, I've got to go and see that guy when he comes. He's not talking about that kind of seeing his face in the flesh. He's talking about the fact that I haven't met you and I still love you. I haven't met you and I'm still contending for you. I haven't met you and I still have the same desire for you as for every other church I've met because it's not just about one church. Not individual churches. It's about God's church. And that church is manifest all around the world. Why is he for the church? When we're for the church, who are we really for? Who are we for when we're for the church? Who made the church? Who purchased the church? So when we're for the church, we're not simply for the individuals, though we are for them. We're for the the God of that church, the the King of that church, the Head of that church, the Savior of that church. That's who we're for. We're for Jesus. Because He's everything. The church is not supposed to be a product of a pastor or a group of people or a denomination. The real church is always, 
The real church is always a product of the work of Jesus Christ. That's the real church. As we consider this, you'll remember, and Brian opened us up with this uh, reading this morning. Remember what Jesus told Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18? I will build. What does it say? My church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why? Because the one who's building it is steadfast, is unmovable, is always abounding in the work of the Lord. He never ceases, and everything he labors to do is done perfectly. This is the great news, friends. Here we are, we come together, we we want to come together, we worship together, we serve together, we want to do all these things, we want to do them well. But know that, that what we're doing isn't what's getting the job done. The one that gets the job done is the one who's gotten the job done since he first spoke the world into existence. It's always Jesus. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he spoke of the church of God, which he, Jesus, purchased with his own blood. Jesus made the church. Jesus founded the church. Jesus established the church. Jesus paid for the church. This is who it's about. This is why we love the church. Because the church is representative of Jesus. You know, you may meet some snarly people. Some people that aren't very lovely in the church. Maybe you've encountered one today. Maybe someone rubbed you the wrong way today. And so it can be hard to love in that instant. But remember this. The church is about Jesus. He made it. He bought it. When we're laboring for the church, we're laboring for Christ. We are not here trying to produce our own little kingdom, our own little empire. We are not preaching us. We're not preaching Rob. We're not preaching Cornerstone. We're preaching Jesus. He's our message. He's our theme. He's our hope. He's our stay. We should be, friends, deeply concerned for churches across the town, across the region, across the country, and across the world. We should be fighting for the whole church. And so I think that begs the question, here you are, you live in Rhode Island. I think most of you do. Any Massachusettsites in here? Connecticutites? Any, any Connecticutites? Yeah, we've got, a few, we've got a few people from around, but you're in this general region. How can you impact the whole church? Don't you feel a little small? Don't you think maybe, well, I can't really have that big of an impact. I'm just one person in just this little town. How do we impact the church? How do we fight for the whole church? What can we do? Well, we can pray. We can pray. Remember Epaphras? We read this in Colossians 4.12. He was a Colossian. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you? Well, he says a little bit more about him than just the fact that he was one of them. He says he's a bondservant of Christ. He's greeting you because he apparently was separated from them. He's a, this fellow worker. He greets them and he's always laboring fervently in prayer. What was he praying? That each one 
would be mature in Christ. They would have the full realization of what Christ can do in a person's life. That they would, they would be fully robed in the righteousness of Christ. For the judgment seat, and robed in the, judge, in the righteousness of Christ for the here and now. He was praying for them. This is what we can do. The, the Bible all over the place talks about the importance of prayer. I'm just going to make a couple of references. They'll both be on the screen behind me. In Romans 15, Paul charges the church at Rome. He says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together. The same word, the same competition. Strive together with me in prayers to God. For me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my servants for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So, what he's saying is, Roman church, pray for me that my ministry among those in Jerusalem would be effective. Well, they're just Roman believers. How can they have an impact on the whole world? Well, Paul's telling them how he can have an impact on the whole church everywhere. The Bible says at the end of the armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication. What does it say? For your own, for your own church body. For your own family. Does he broaden it a bit? He says, for all the saints. And for me. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it, the gospel, I may speak boldly, or in in my chains, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so he's asking for prayer that the ministry of the gospel would spread. To who? Ephesian church. The Ephesian church. Just, Just an Ephesian. Just a Roman. Just a Colossian. Ready for this? Just a Warwickian. Can you fight for the whole church? I guess the question even more so is, will you fight for the whole church? Do you treasure the church of Jesus Christ? Then you must fight for the whole church. And the way you can do that Firstly, is through prayer. So we, we recognize that we've got to fight for the whole church. Well, there's a second aspect of this contention that Paul brings to our attention, and that's this. We should fight for the church's encouragement. So now he gets a little bit more specific. First, it's the whole church, and now we, we kind of funnel in at a particular area of our fighting or our contention. We're fighting for the church's encouragement. Does that sound like a fight to you? Like, yeah, we're going to sock them dead. <laughs> it's not that kind of fight. It's my, my love and my treasure is so deep for the church that I want them to be lifted up. You know how many people around here are just dragging their face? Why? Because life is hard. Life is hard. There are, there are conflicts all the time. There are, there are difficulties. There are financial woes. There are physical woes. There are relational woes. I don't know what woe you have, but I know you have at least one if you don't have a multitude of them. Everyone around you has these woes. They're difficult. They're hard. Do you love the people nearby? You need to be a support to them. 
We're fighting for them. We're fighting for their encouragement. What kind of encouragement? He says at the beginning of verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Hearts has the idea of everything that controls a believer. He's not talking about the thing that beats in your chest. He's talking about that which is the center of everything you do, that which controls you. So he's talking about encouraging the the way that they operate. And and he's talking about encouraging them. The the word is parakaleo. It means to come alongside to, of. Come alongside of and minister. It's like you've got this guy, he's he's limping down the street, and he is weary and tired, and if you're going to parakaleo him, if you're going to encourage him, you're actually going to swoop up alongside, you're going to dip your shoulder up underneath his armpit, and wrap your arm around his shoulder, and now, now he's encouraged. Whereas before he was weary and ready to quit. And now, there you are, lifting him up, and you're taking the steps with him. This is the kind of encouragement that Paul is talking about. We're talking about being so intimately tied with people nearby us. We love them so much that we're willing to come alongside of them and have our ministry mirror the ministry of the Holy Spirit himself. We're not talking about being the Holy Spirit for someone else. That is an entirely different matter altogether. You don't remember when Jesus was about to leave, he said, don't worry, I won't leave you without a helper. I will send another helper. The term he used was paraclete, or parakletos. It has the idea of coming alongside. And so when we see the spirit being called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, and then we're told that we need to be those that, that are encouraging, that, that are we're, we're to be encouraging just like the Spirit. We recognize that the ministry that the Holy Spirit has in our lives is to be reproduced in and through us. Now again, we're not talking about saying, hey, you know what I think about what you shouldn't be doing? That's being in the Holy Spirit for someone in an entirely different way than this is being talk, talked about. We're talking about coming alongside and you see someone weary and, and tired and and struggling, and maybe they're struggling with the same problem week after week, and month after month. And you think, hey, listen, can't you get this by now? Aren't you smarter than this? Aren't you tougher than this? And the reality is, they're not. This is why God's called the church together. So that the weak can be upheld. By, upheld by us? Well, yes, in some ways. Upheld by us and pointed to the source of stability. That is the, the end game, is to constantly point people to the stability that is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, I can't be your stability Pastor Bill can't be your stability. The elders can't be your stability. The deacons can't be your stability. Your Sunday school teacher can't be your stability. Your husband, your wife, your kids, none of them can be your stability. Only Christ can be your stability. But we can be there as a source of support. We can be there as a constant stay so that they see in their eyes what they know from the Scriptures. You see, that's what we're supposed to be is a manifestation of of who Jesus is. And if we are quick to slap, if we are quick to bark, if we are quick to rebuke, if we are quick to squash, the manifestation they're seeing is something other than Jesus. 
My whole heart cries out, he essentially is saying. I'm fighting for you. I love the whole church. For you, for those in Laodicea, and for all those that haven't seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, lifted up, is what he's saying. We're, we're talking about lifting people's perspective. And there are two ways that he gives us that we can encourage the church. The first one is this. He says, being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. So we'll just kind of give this a little title. Unity through love. I find it interesting, as you should as well, that this is a passive verb. Passive. Well, active is, I am slapping myself. (laughs) It's never a wise thing to do, unless you're tired and you're driving down the street. Passive means someone else is doing the slapping. And I'm sure that's probably happened to you before. Passive, you're receiving this. Well, he says, being knit together in love. What is also interesting is that it's past tense. So essentially what he's saying is, you will be an encouragement to others after you have been knit together in love. You will be an encouragement to each other when you have been knit together in love. That's how this is worded, and and it's really helpful to us. We want to encourage one another, but we will only do that when we've actually had that happen. This is a work of God, and this is what's so so important to us, is we, we really can't do God's work for Him. We try to. We try to do God's work for Him. We try to meddle in people's lives and try to convince them of things, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. God's work. He's got to do it. And with this particular concept, if we're going to encourage one another, it's going to be because he's done something in us. Let's look at a couple of passages that are very important to this. First of all, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're talking about contending for one another. We're talking about fighting for the church. Not fighting with the church. Not fighting with opponents of the church. We're talking about fighting for the church. They're so important to us that we're willing to fight for the whole church and we're willing to fight in a very specific way to encourage the church. And the way that that encouragement is going to take place is as we are being knit together in love. Take a look at Ephesians 4. It's a a similar concept. He says here in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Do so with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's putting up with one another. You ever have to do that? Putting up with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, when you see of the Spirit... It's telling you about possessive. You could say this this way. You could say, endeavoring to keep the Spirit's unity in the bond of peace. Who does the unity belong to? The Spirit. This is the same type of concept that we've got back in Colossians chapter 2. Being knit together in love. Well, can we knit one another together? Can I say, hey, yeah, this is how we're going to... I'm going to love you so much, you and I will be joined at the hip. You've tried that before with some people, haven't you? How'd it work out? Great? 
Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Because sometimes it's you initiating it and sometimes it's someone else that's initiating it. Sometimes the Spirit's initiating it and actually tying your heart together with someone and there's this, this sense of, of a bond that can't be broken. That only happens by God's working. Well, there's a unity that comes from the Spirit as well and, and it all is related to this concept. Head back to Colossians now, but Colossians 3. Colossians 3. He says it a little bit differently in Colossians 3, but it's the same concept, right? He's talking now about being knit together in love. Again, that's passive. It's something that happens, that God does this. He knits our hearts together because of love. In Colossians 3, he kind of puts a little bit of a different spin on it in verse 14. He says, Now, but above all these things, put on love. That's a command now, right? Before it was, this is going to happen to you. Now in Colossians 3, it's put on love. And here's what it does. It is a bond of perfection. It's a bond that unites us. And so, just because something, like knitting us together in love, is a work of God, it doesn't mean that there's no responsibility or call in my life. There is something that God is, is telling me about myself in this matter. And that's this. Put on love. Now, just, just to kind of think this through, just to kind of give it a context, we're going to get to Colossians chapter 3 in a couple of months. The idea that's going on in Colossians chapter 3 is put off the old man, essentially, and put on the new man. Oh, well, what does that mean? Well, it's the same thing that he talks about in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance against such. There is no law. What he's telling us in Colossians 3 is to walk in the power of the Spirit. It's actually to, really to surrender my heart to the King of the Church. And when that happens, I will put on love. And when I put on love, that love has a way of bonding people together. Walking in the Spirit while we, we in, endeavor to accomplish this, it's still a dependent situation. We love to have things that we can do, right? Like if, if, you, if you like to do gardening, you want to dig up the garden and, and prepare the soil and you want to plant the seeds and you want to water it and you want to weed it and you want to do all these things and make sure you tend it. You want to take care of all of these things. You, you're, you're very active or maybe you're a painter and you love painting. You're an odd person, but don't worry about that. You're, you love painting. You, you want to get out the brushes, and you want to get out all your, your stuff, and you want to make sure you're cutting in nicely. You're going to do something. We like things that we know how to do, and, and, and we strive, and, and we, we flourish in those things. Well, when we come to these, these issues, it doesn't work that way. You don't get good at loving It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's very, it's yielding. It's, it's passive. It's learning to say, God, my life is not my own. I know I've been bought with a price. God, I want you to have control of me. That's when love comes forth in its truth and reality. It's the emptiness of ourselves. And so, it, it, this is kind of a hard concept we want to encourage the church. How do we encourage the church? By learning to yield ourselves to the Lord. Being knit together 
in love. That's the first way that we, we learn to encourage the church. This is the second way as well. And instead of looking at our New King James Bibles, I want to give it to you in the ESV because it's, it's more healthy or helpful to understand. It'll be on the screen behind me as we look, read the, the rest of verse 2 and verse 3 of Colossians 2. It says this, To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the way that we're going to encourage one another, first is being knit together in love, and the second way that we're going to be an encouragement to one another is by really coming to know Jesus Christ. Or you can kind of put this tagline on it, understanding of Christ, or understanding Christ, however you want to put it. But it's the, the idea is to know Him. Look at how this is phrased. To reach. Our New King James has to attain to. To reach what? The riches. Now we talked about the riches last week. The riches of Christ. To reach all of the riches of full assurance. Well, what's full assurance? I'm fully confident. What am I confident about? An understanding. Okay, this is very strangely worded. Understanding what? The knowledge of God's mystery. All right, you're, you're kind of dragging me along here a little bit. Full assurance of, of understanding, a knowledge about a mystery. Oh, oh, we have clarity. Which is Christ. This is what he wants for us. This is how we're going to be an encouragement to one another is to know Christ. Listen, because to know Christ is to know all the wisdom and all the knowledge that God has for us. You'll remember in the book of Psalms, in the 19th Psalm, he says that when, when we know the Word, when we know the Word, it makes wise the simple. Why is that, friends? Why is it that when we know the Word, it makes a person who was simple wise? Because the Scriptures reveal Him who is in all intensity, wisdom and knowledge. You see, this is what Jesus is. In Him dwells all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let, let me just try to break this verse down just in bite-sized bullet points on the screen behind me. A fuller understanding of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ This is what he's calling for. A fuller understanding of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Secondly, a realization that Jesus is the mystery revealed. And finally, a realization that Jesus is the source and storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. That is a mouthful, isn't it? If you look at that verse, it's like, That's pretty heavy. To reach all the riches of the full assurance and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, just to to tie this together, because the Scriptures, if you haven't guessed it by now, the Scriptures from Genesis 1-1 to the very last verse in Revelation 22 are revealing one person. Jesus. 
If you're not convinced of it, let me, let me give you one more shot at it, okay? Proverbs chapter 2, please. Proverbs chapter 2. I want you to try to remember, I read that verse back in Colossians 2 a number of times so that certain words would stick out in your, in your mind. And I want you to think about riches. And I want you to think about treasure. And I want you to think about wisdom. And I want you to think about knowledge. I want those, those words to, to ring in your ears. So as we read Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1-7, through 7, and you hear what's being spoken of, you'll recognize there is continuity between Proverbs chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 2, all wrapped up in one person whom I love. It's about Jesus. Look at what it says here in Proverbs 2. My son... If you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives Wisdom From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path, paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. We could go on and on, but the idea is conveyed. You see the treasure, you see the riches, you see the wisdom, you see the knowledge, you see the understanding. It is all found in Christ. And the way that Paul says it at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is this way, and it is sweet. He says this, Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All of Scripture was building up to his unveiling. All scripture was building up to his unveiling. He is the mystery of God. He is the mystery of Christ. He is the mystery of the gospel. It is all bound up and unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ. All of scripture is a revelation of him. There is nothing, listen, (laughs) there is nothing that a believer can think about. There is nothing that encourages the heart of believers more than feasting on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that it will encourage your heart more than feasting on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You want to know why? Because when you're looking at the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, you're looking away from you. I don't mean to be rude to you. I really don't. I, I, honestly, I love you. You kind of stink. So do I. When's the last time you failed at something? Don't start me down that road. <laughs> Your sufficiency is not found in you. Your changed life, your newfound wisdom, your ingenuity, your wisdom, your hard work, your good deeds, your sweetness, your softness, your kindness. Listen, if you want a solid footing 
Look at Jesus. Nothing will encourage your heart. Nothing will encourage your heart like feasting on the sufficiency of Jesus. He is a bomb to our soul. We should fight for the whole church. Not just the one in Colossae, not just the one in Laodicea, not just the ones that we know, all the ones that haven't seen our face. What should we fight for? Their encouragement. We want them to be encouraged. How is that going to happen? By being knit together in love and by knowing and understanding that which has been revealed through the person of Jesus Christ and pointing to His sufficiency. Well, head back now to Colossians chapter 2 and we want to see the third aspect of our contention for the church. And that's this. We should fight for the church's stability. We should fight for the church's stability. In verses 4 and 5, we see this concept. It says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. The steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He tells us in verse 4, this is why I am so concerned. Because there are deceivers. There are people that want to twist. There are people that shortchange. There are people that want to add to the Scriptures. When we fight for the church, we're fighting through prayer, as we already mentioned, and through the proclamation of Jesus. This serves as the protection that we need. The church needs protection from false teachers. Because false teachers abound. They're all over the place. They're on the radio. They're on the television. They've written books. They'll they'll come to your door. It's everywhere. False teachers. And what they want to do is they want to make plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. In other words, they can bring some rational thing. You know, of course you need to do this. Of course you need to believe this. Of course you need to do this. This is what a, a real Christian is like. They've got all kinds of plausible arguments. And what Paul says is, I want to warn you and I want to protect you. I say all these things about who Jesus is, lest someone distort you and deceive you to look somewhere other than Jesus. In Colossians 1, he said this, in verse 23. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. The gospel is so incredibly simple. And there are false teachers that distort the gospel. There are are churches that tell you that you need to do this to gain God's approval. You need to do this to keep in God's favor. Well, they don't know Christ, which is why they're pointing to something else. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, this is on the screen behind me, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent beguiled Eve by His craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from, from the simplicity that is in Christ. Listen, a message that comes short of Jesus must be rejected. 
a message that goes beyond Jesus must be rejected. Jesus is the message. Because Jesus is the revelation of God. Because He is the fullness of God. In Him dwells all the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. You see, Jesus is the sufficient one. He's the one that makes us sufficient. So, messages that don't point us to Jesus, they're pointing to the wrong stuff. A message that tells us, yes, Jesus is awesome, but, but I really want to tell you about this. They go on beyond Jesus? That's no good, friends. The message is the same all the time. The message is Jesus. When the Hebrews, the Christian Hebrews that were being persecuted, asked God, they were praying, God, help me, God sent them a message. What was the message? Oh, God, He went sundry times in various ways, in times past, talked to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. See, God's message has always been pointing toward Christ. And the reason we keep bringing this up is some people want to point elsewhere. And I want to warn you, this is what Paul said, I want to warn you lest you're deceived by plausible arguments. And I want to tell you, there is no argument that dissuades us from Christ. The church needs protection from false teachers. The church needs order as well. Look at verse 5. It says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit. This is how much he loved them. He was actually there in spirit. He's saying, My hearts are tied to you, is essentially what he's saying. And what is he doing? He's rejoicing to see your good order. The church needs order. And God has supplied that order. Anyone want to guess what that order starts with? Um, you remember the term, the chief cornerstone? Anyone? <laughs> Who is the chief cornerstone? Christ, Jesus, is the chief cornerstone. And then, in, in league with Him, the apostles and prophets come, right? They're a part of the foundation. Well, they're revealing to us the New Testament. And the New Testament is pointing us to whom? Jesus. And then God has given gifts to the church. Pastors and elders and teachers and deacons. And who are these people supposed to be pointing us toward? Jesus. You see, God has given gifts to the church, and all of these gifts are all to be a revelation pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church needs order, and that order is going to prevent us from looking elsewhere for our solutions. One last concept here the church needs stability. Well, that's what we've been talking about for a little while now, right? The church needs stability. What provides stability? It says at the end of verse 5, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. In whom? Christ. Do you realize that Christ is the one that provides that very stability? This is why next week when we look at Colossians 2, 6, and 7, it really kind of embodies this. We're to be walking in Him, rooted and grounded in Him, this is, this is what He's telling us to do. So, this stability comes from Him. That's why we preach Christ. He is the source of our stability. When we look at ourselves, we see unsteady hands. 
When we look at ourselves, we see trembling hands and feeble knees. When we look to Jesus, we see an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. When we look to Him, we find Him to be the rock of our salvation. When we look to Him, we find Him to be fully sufficient for our stability. Listen, he who trusts in Christ will never be moved. This is why we preach Christ. There's no other message. We're fighting for people, not against them. We're fighting for them. We're fighting for the whole church, that the church may be encouraged, that the church might be stable. And the way we fight is through agonizing prayer and through tireless proclamation of Jesus Christ. This is his message in Colossians 2, 1 through 5. He's telling us we have this striving and contention for the church. And that striving, at least by implication, is through prayer and through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the mystery of God, unveiled. He is everything we need. Let me ask you a question before we stop. Do you know this one? that gives this soundness and sufficiency. Do you know this one, Jesus, who will provide you with everlasting righteousness and everlasting life? If you know Him, this discussion is a feast for your soul. If you don't, maybe you're wondering what this is all about and what we're even talking about. And I want to just encourage you, the Bible proclaims And we have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And when you experience and when you know Jesus Christ, you won't want to go beyond Him. And you'll never want to come short of Him. You just want Him. Because He's enough. And so I encourage you, if if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't really know what any of that really means. When we close with our last song, and everyone's starting to walk away. Come up to the front. We'll show you in the, through the Scriptures, through the Bible, how you can have Jesus Christ as the stability of your soul that will never change. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And you too can be encouraged together because He will knit you together. And He'll provide for you that stability that you can't find anywhere else. Let's pray together. Father, help us that we would rejoice in what you've done. We pray for, I pray for each believer here that you would help us to continue to feast upon the sufficiency that is found in your Son. We're so grateful to you for all you've done for us. Help us to be concerned for the whole church. May that be manifest by our prayer, that it won't just focus in on people that we know, people that we're closest to, though they certainly will be included, but people we've never seen, people in far-off lands that are being persecuted for their faith. May our hearts be knit together with them because of your love. May we proclaim till Jesus comes back his sufficiency that others would know the joy and peace 
of salvation through him. And Father, we also ask if there are those in here among us that do not know Jesus as their Savior, that even today they would embrace him fully for their sufficiency before you, that they would experience the joy of knowing that they have a standing with you that is perfect because of Jesus. Do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.